0: My subject this morning is called the Book of Life. Now, we are at the last of our series. We have a mini-series here, and I'm going to give you a little bit of background of the series, and then we're going to get into the Book of Life. Now, our first uh, sermon of the series was the New Covenant. Not too often do you hear messages on the covenants. And there's a reason for it, as I will explain as we go through it. Now, the Bible says that this new covenant is founded on better promises. So the new is better than the old. The old was a covenant made with Moses on Mount Sinai. The new was made with that Christ made to us when he died on the cross. The book of Hebrews is the key that unlocks the reality of God's grace. In the last 25 years, there's been more sermons preached on grace than ever before. More books have been written about it, and it seems to be the topic of the day. We are saved by grace, and I think that we all believe that, but let me say right now that we are not saved by our theology. Now, we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. In this country, we have about 300 different denominations. We're all worshiping the same God. But there seems to be a division amongst the people of God. And they are broken up into different denominations. Now, you've heard me say that I have nothing against denominations except the emphasis they place on their differences that does not help the body of Christ. That's the only reason that I have that any differences at all that I have with denominations. But the book of Hebrews is a book that is not often preached about today. And there's a reason for it, because sometimes it can be confusing what happened before the cross and what happens after the cross. In Hebrews 9, 16, the Bible says this. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Now, Jesus Christ made the covenant to us, the new covenant. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Now, keep in mind, that there is a certain theology before the cross and a certain theology after the cross. In other words, Jesus taught before the cross and he was the bridge to the new covenant. Now, the Bible says here, and according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I want that to sink in just a little bit. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And what do we have today? I mean, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died for the sin of the world, the Bible says. So if he died for the sin of the world, which he did, for any Christian now who thinks that he needs more forgiveness than he already received through the cross, what would have to happen? Well, Jesus Christ would have to die again. He died once for the sins, the past, the present, and the future sin. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He went 2,000 years backward and forgave all the sin. In the Old Testament, the only thing that it did was cover sin. Now, the Bible says that Jesus Christ came to take away sin. Not to cover it. Not waiting for a day of atonement. But he took it away. He took the sins away. And so, it was all provided at the cross. The truth will set you free. Now, I don't know of any church where that text is not used, the truth will set you free, and yet we all believe differently. It's amazing to me. The truth will set you free, and it does, but how does it do it? If everybody is proclaiming what they are teaching, that the truth will set them free, does it? Does it really set them free, or does it put them in bondage? What does it do? Well when you come to realize and stand firm in the truth that you are forgiven forever. Now your sins are forgiven whether you confess those sins or not. Now I know that there's a popular belief that comes from 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But we learned that that First John 1 John 1.9, John was speaking not to the Christians. He was speaking to the, the Gnostics. The Gnostics were a group of people. A, they claimed to be Christians, but they also claimed that they had never sinned. And they said that Jesus Christ didn't come physically. And so John was saying to those people, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you. So here's what happens. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, God cleaned house in you. You may not have understood it. At that time, It's. I know that when I gave my life to Christ, I didn't understand what being born again was really all about. The truth is, will set you free. Now, in Hebrews 9, 28, the Bible says this. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation. Now notice what it says here. Without reference to sin. To those who eagerly await him. Now, I can't tell you how many times or how many People I've known that they believe, here they are, born again Christians, but they believe that they must appear before the judgment bar of God and give an account for their sins. And the Bible says here, will appear a second time, the second coming of Christ, for salvation without reference to sin. Without reference to sin. The Bible tells us that He's not only forgiven us our sins, He has forgotten them. And yet, We believe that at the judgment day that we'll have to give an account for sins that he is not only forgiven, but he has forgotten. That doctrine has brought fear and insecurity to millions of Christians. And it just isn't so. The Bible says in Revelation 20, when it talks about the great white throne judgment, it is for unbelievers it's not for, um, not for believers. When we accepted Christ, the Bible says that we have passed through the judgment. We are safe and secure, rock solid in Christ. And I'll explain just how rock solid that we are. Listen, there is no judgment to the Christian. The new covenant involves God changing our desires to match God's desires. When Christ lives in you, there's a complete change that takes place, whether we understand it, realize it, or not. Just a couple of days ago, I had a family come down from Maryland, and uh, they were visit. we were visiting, and we were going through. They wondered, they said that, you know, I know what I should do, and I don't always do what I should do, and I said, well, welcome to the family. And I said, uh, and they said, but it gets so confusing. And so I brought them to a text that we use here many times, and I want to bring it again, Ezekiel 36, 26. And I want you to know what happens to you when you said yes to Christ. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. Now, Ezekiel, he prophesied what was going to take place. He says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, let me explain a little bit what that is. When you said yes to Christ, God performed a surgery on you. He opened you up. He took out that heart of stone, the Bible says. He took that heart of stone and he replaced it with a new heart. When he gave you that new heart, he also gave you a new human spirit. You see, every one of us were born in Adam. We had a leaning towards a propensity towards sin. Every one of us sinned before we understood what sin was all about. It was our nature. Now, just visualize this. uh, You're born and you, you you sin before you understand what sin is. And then you go to a church and the preacher stands up and he tells you you're not supposed to sin. Well, how does that work? You're born a sinner. And so far, nobody has stopped. You would think that maybe Moses might have made it. Maybe David might have made it. Maybe one of these patriarchs would have made it. They were so dedicated to the Lord. But none of them made it. The only human being was God who made it. And that was Jesus Christ. When he took on humanity, he did not have the propensity. He did not have the leaning towards sin. You and I had that at birth. And then we were told we're not to sin. No wonder so many people are discouraged today. Because they don't understand what's going on. Because up here, they think, oh, if you only knew what goes on up here. You know, I may come to church, I may carry my Bible, I may quote scripture, but if you only knew the thoughts that go through here. It's like I was telling them just uh, just a few weeks ago, I was reading my Bible in my home. I was reading my Bible, and all of a sudden, an evil thought came through my mind back from Vietnam. I go, where did that come from? I was reading the Bible. Where in the world did that come from? And Paul says that it is sin that dwells within us. These thoughts are not you. These thoughts, the Bible says the devil is the accuser of the brethren. And he says to you, and you call yourself a Christian. Look the way you're thinking right now. And you call yourself a Christian. Look what you're watching on that TV. And you you call yourself a Christian. He is the accuser of the brethren. It's all he can do. I mean, you're safe and secure in Christ. He can't pull you out of Christ. So he harasses you through your mind. What's going on through here? And the important thing is we need to go down 12 inches to our core and get what's down here up here. And Paul says that's the renewing of the mind. He calls it the renewing of the mind. What is the renewing of the mind? Some people think it's just prayer, study, I mean, study the Bible and have quiet time. They have a formula for all this stuff. Is that what the Bible is talking about by renewing your mind? No, the Bible, when it talks about renewing your mind, is remember who you are in Christ. You are safe and secure in Christ. What goes on up here is not what goes down in here. Because down here, I have never met a Christian, never met a Christian who, who, who woke up and said, well, how can I sin today? No, that's not a Christian. Down here, you desire what God desires. But if you listen too long for what's going on up here, you'll give into the flesh. And that's what most of us, all of us do. We, we focus a little bit. When the world comes at us, look, there's all sorts of situations, work, family, everything. And when that comes at us, we have a tendency to listen more to the flesh. And Paul just says, it's the renewing of your mind that will, inst- will stable you out. In verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. And notice what he's going to do. And I'm going to cause you to walk in my statures. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. In other words, your desire through a lifetime of sanctification. The Bible says that when you give your life to Christ, you're sanctified. But then there's that process of sanctification that goes through all of your life as long as you're here on this earth. And then what does God say? He says, listen, Jesus says to us, when I come back. I'm going to give you a new body that will match what's already in your heart. You see, in your heart, if you are born again Christian, you are rock solid with God. There's nothing wrong with you. Not absolutely nothing wrong with you. We need to get what's rock solid here up here. And that will cause us, believe it or not, to sin less. I mean, it's amazing what God has given to us in this new covenant. It's a whole new way of thinking. It's a new new way of believing. It's it's nothing that's ever been before. In the Old Testament, they didn't realize, I mean, they didn't know what what we have now today under the new covenant. This is built on better promises. What are those better promises? The better promise is that you are rock solid with God. You're a rock solid with him. He loves you just the way you are. He says that he will transform us into his image over a period of a lifetime. So let God do it. I mean, if you think that all of this other stuff is going to do it, you're going to fight that battle all of your life. Give in to what God says is true. And you'll find freedom. Freedom knowing that you are one with God. That he loves you that he'll take care of you, he's going to never leave you, he's never going to forsake you. It's it's just a beautiful truth. Now, we are a forgiven people. Listen to hear what, what Hebrew says. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Before, when we commit a sin, Before we can get anything out of our mouth, it's already forgiven. It's already forgotten. I mean, we worship a fantastic God. A God who knows that we were born with the propensity, the leaning towards sin. He knows that. And that's why he says in Corinthians, he says, I will not hold your sins against you. Second Corinthians 519, I will not hold your sins against you. And he will not, because we are his child. And then the following week, we looked at the predestination puzzle. Now, there is a popular belief, and uh, I can understand where they get the belief. Predestination comes to us from Romans and Ezekiel. Four chapters in Romans, two in Ezekiel. And if you read them out of context, remember, whenever you're going to take a doctrine out of the Bible, it's context, context, context. It's just like the real estate. It's location, location, location. Reading from the Bible, it's context, context, context. So in Romans, of course, Romans 9 is the most popular. That talks about God having the right to do what he wanted to do. And he does have that right. But that's not what it's talking about. But that's what we're made, led to believe. And so we find that there are folks who believe, and they sincerely believe, that God is choosing individuals to be saved, and then those he doesn't choose, they don't have any chance at all. So that's the predestination, and it's a puzzle, too, because we found that God is not pre-selecting individuals and leaving out others so that they have no chance of salvation. God is not doing that. So, where do these believers get this doctrine? Well, it's in the Bible. Predestination is in the Bible. But what does it really mean? What is God teaching us in Romans, and what is God teaching us in Ephesians? Well, we found out that what God is doing, he brought salvation to the early church, to the Jews. At Pentecost, it was all Jews. 3,000 Jews heard Peter give the call to repentance, and they responded, and that was the beginning of the church. So the Bible says that the gospel was gonna go to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. It did go to the Jew first, and then it went to the Gentile. And what Romans and Ephesians is talking about is God predestined the Gentiles to be saved as well as, just like the Jews. And so it's not individual selecting. It's talking about Jews and Gentiles. The doctrine of predestination or election, election as some call it, is about God's plan to offer salvation to all humanity, both to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Listen to Romans 3, 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, yes, Paul says, of Gentiles also. So the issue in the Bible, in the New Testament, is the gospel going to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. God predestined before the foundations of this world that all would have an opportunity to accept Christ and find life. So the predestination has nothing to do with the individuals. God started with the Jews, he went to the Gentiles, and the Bible says, when the son of man is lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He will draw men. Men will have the opportunity to choose whether they want whether they want to live in God or whether they choose to live outside of God. In Ephesians 1:4, the Bible says this just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we would be holy and blameless before God in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intentions of his will. So here you have it. Who is the us here? He has chosen us. And he predestined us. So here we find that Paul is, he's preaching to the Ephesians. They are all Gentiles. And so he's saying to them that he has predestined us, all of us, all you Gentiles. He predestined you to find salvation, just like the Jews. Now, you'll notice as you read your Bible, if you read the epistles, you'll find that in Ephesians and in Romans, those are written to Gentiles. There's books of the Bible that are written to Jews. Hebrews is one. First and second and third John is another. First and second Peter, written to the Jews. Now, they apply to all. That's not what I'm, I'm not saying that they don't apply to us all. But those letters were written to the Jewish people. Now, the truth about predestination is not individual selecting among the Gentiles. Because in those books of the Bible that were written to the Jews, there's not one ounce, you cannot find anything that even pertains to predestination. Why? Because the Jews knew that they were God's chosen people. You didn't have to tell them They knew it. Now, there's no division when it comes to the Holy Spirit. There's only unity. Predestination was really designed to bring us all together, not to separate groups. It was designed to bring us together, Jew and Gentile alike. They all have the same opportunity. And how it got twisted, how they You take a text out of context about the potter and the clay. I mean, the illustrations that's used in Romans uh, that God can do what he wants to do, hardening Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart was already hardened. So, I mean, it's taking things out of context that really throws the body of Christ because you you wonder, what do I believe? Um, But there is there is no division in the body of Christ and anyone anybody's identity that we assume other than as we are now a child of God if we assume any other identity, I don't care what it is then we are hurting the body of Christ we are all a child of God now the other message that uh, we had was can you lose it all and of course that's the doctrine of once saved always saved and there's a big division amongst the body of Christ some believe it some don't believe it and against once again I want to say our theology does not save us good theology helps us to see God in a new light It helps us to understand what God is doing in us and through us. When God came into your life, the only thing that he has ever asked any of us to do is give him permission to live his life in us and through us. That's all God has ever wanted from the human race. Allow him to come in and live his life Christ in you, the Bible says, is the hope of glory. And so it's all we need to do is say, Lord, I give you permission to live your life in me and through me. And believe me, once you do that, it will have an effect on how you treat everyone. How you treat the person behind the counter. How you treat every single person, your neighbor, everything. It'll have a profound effect if you just allow Christ to live in you and through you. Now, those who believe that you can lose it all, they have good, sound logic. As you know, and I have confessed to you all, that for 15 years I only preached half of the gospel. And there was a time that I believed that you could lose it all. Now, the logic is, you are given free will. Now that's true, isn't it? We've all have free will. So you can accept or reject salvation, and that's true. We can. We can reject it or accept it. And you can change your mind at any time. So that's pretty solid logic for those who believe that you can lose it all. You can lose it at any time. You can get discouraged. You can do whatever. And you can just say, I don't want God anymore. And, um, and that would all be true if you were not born again. That's why the Bible uses that term, you must be born again. What does that mean to be born again? Well, I explained it. And Ezekiel says he's going to give you a new heart. He's going to give you a, a whole new way of looking at life. Now, whether you're eight when you receive Christ or whether you're 80, it doesn't make any difference. But I can tell you one thing, that it happened to you. You may not have understood it. You may have gone through most of your life without understanding what happened at your deepest core. The Bible says in 1 John that if you, when you receive Christ... You will no longer sin. How do you take that text? And and every one of us know, well, that's not me. That's not me because I sin. But the Bible does say that you will not sin. And the Bible says you will not sin from your deepest core. Not up here. Here. You won't sin. Because you're rock solid with Christ. He lives in you. It's your desire to do what he wants you to do. You don't always do it because you listen up here. And so the, the whole key is to get what's here up here by the renewing of your mind. Now, you cannot, and I say this with all the authority from God's word, you cannot get unreborn. You are born in Adam. And when you're born in Christ, it's forever. It's forever. When you said yes to Christ, God's dire desires became yours. Ephesians 1:13 and 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now just think about that. Those of you, first of all, you had to hear the message of truth. So you heard that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So you heard that. Now, do you believe it? So you've heard it, you believed it, and your life changed. Now, a lot of folks, when you say, when you were born again, what happened to you? If you asked me that when I was born again, I would say, well, I don't know. I said, I had the same bad thoughts up here. And, um, but I was changing. It seems like I was changing. I didn't understand it, but I knew that I was changing. Yes, that's what happens. When you accept Christ as your personal Savior, there's a change. Then as we grow in Christ, Now, I mean, it's saying a lot when I say to you for 15 years, I was an evangelist and I preached half the gospel. And I thought I was preaching the full gospel, but I was only preaching half of it. It's a learning process. God is helping us to learn and he's carrying us along. He's counseling us and we're learning. That's what this Christian life is all about. But in that learning process, you're as solid as you could ever be. I know that there's a lot of things that happen. But listen to this. I, I would think that anybody that would read this text in Romans 11:29, 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are what? Irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You don't lose them because of discouragement. You don't lose them because of sin. The sin issues was settled 2,000 years ago. Now, Paul wrote the epistles, and when he did, he knew that there was a variety of people who were at different stages of experiencing and accepting the gospel. And I know that that certainly was true with me. Now, the Bible says here, in Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he is able also to save forever, save forever those who draw near to God. He always lives to make intercession for them. So the Bible says that he is able to save us forever. So do you believe it? Do you believe it or do you think, in the back of your mind, that it's up to your performance whether he's really going to do that. That maybe, maybe your performance is not that good at this time. And so he's waiting for it to get better and better. No, that's not the way it works. When God comes in to you, he cleans house before he comes in. He forgives all the sin. He, he cleans house. Then he comes in and he dwells within you. And as Christ in you, the Bible says, the hope of glory. Now, <clears throat> Paul, when he, when he was writing the epistles, he knew. I mean, look at the Corinthians. He, he says, dear saints. He calls the Corinthians saints. And here they were going through. They were getting drunk at communion service. And they called them saints. What would we call them today? Well, we would probably go. must be backsliders or something. We have a name for it. But he calls them saints. He says to the Ephesians. Dear saints. I mean it's, it's amazing. How, how Paul. Recognized that if they were in Christ. They were in Christ. And just because they were performing wrong. Just because they didn't understand things right. That they were still rock solid with God. Now. I hear a lot about. I hear, through the years, I've heard a lot of criticism about my emphasis on grace. Uh, I can remember that uh, one man said to you, he said, the whole Bible is just grace, 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 grace. And uh, he said, I don't think you realize it, but you preach so heavy on grace that you give people permission to sin. And I've said to him, and I've said it to others. So far, nobody has needed permission. They're sinning all right just the way they're doing it. They don't need permission. I'll tell you what grace does. And it's recorded in the Bible. It's recorded in Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. What brings salvation to all men? Grace. That new covenant of grace, open the door for all to come in and be saved. So, it says, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Now we're talking about the book of life. But I want you to understand that what causes a person to sin less is grace. It's, This whole concept of grace, you're going to sin more because you know that your sins are forgiven. I know my sins are forgiven next week, next year, following year. Yes, I know they're all been taken care of. And does that want me to sin more? No, because Christ lives in you. You don't want to sin more. You want to sin less. And the Bible says the grace of God causes you to sin less. The more you embrace grace, the the more your life is going to be more fulfilling. You will find yourself sinning less. You'll never completely stop because of up here. And that's why Jesus says, when I come, I'll give you a new body, and you won't have that leaning towards sin anymore. You won't have that propensity. You'll You'll be solid. This idea of the book of life some people have wondered their name when they accept Christ as their personal Savior, their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But then they believe, because of what they do, their performance, or whatever it is, they believe that somehow it can be erased out. And here the text says, No, I will not erase his name from the Book of Life. So there's no in and out. You're in. When you accept Jesus Christ, you're in. It's only when you believe that, that your life changes. If you're in and out, it's too frustrating because now you're just going to look at yourself. You're just going to try to examine your life. And you're going to look at it and you're going to be discouraged. And you're wondering all of this because of what's going on up here. Believe me, Every single one of us, we have this issue. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. He can't get down here. He can only get here. He just accuses you from not being what you're supposed to be, not acting like you should, not reading your Bible like you should, not having quiet time, all this other stuff. He accuses you. If you were really serious about God, you'd be doing this. That's not the way God works. That's the way the devil works. He is the accuser of the brethren. Now, notice here in verse 5, it says, He who overcomes. Immediately, when people, this is a problem sometimes with reading the Bible. We try to put ourselves in every text. And we, you can't do that in studying the Bible. You cannot do that. Now, it's just like, and I've said it before here, there's a lot of people that they have the Bible with everything that Jesus said is in red. And sometimes I've referred to them as red-letter Christians because there's some people who want to do everything that Jesus said because Jesus is God. So Paul, yes, he was a great man, but Jesus was God, so I want to do everything. No, you do not want to do everything that Jesus said to do. You do not want to do that. He said, if your right eye offend you, pluck it out. If your right hand, cut it off. You don't want to do that because that's not what Jesus meant when he said it. It's not so much what the Bible says, it's what the Bible means when it says it. Context, context, context. So, we hear some read, he who overcomes. Oh, so I've got to overcome. Uh, you, you see what they do? They read a text and they say, well, I have some issues. I mean, I, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with that. And, and the Bible says, he who overcomes will be clothed with a white garment. And then their names will never be erased out of the book of life. So then they start wondering, is my name written in the book of life? Uh and then they read Revelation 20 and the great right throne of judgment and they read a text where it says all will appear before the judgment bar of God. And so they say, oh, that's Christians too. No, it's all unbelievers will appear before the judgment bar of God. The believers have already been judged. You have been judged the moment you said yes to Christ. Now, it sounds like he who overcomes, it sounds like We've got something to do with it. We've got to get our act together. We've got to uh, somehow prove to God that uh, we're, we're worthy and that uh, he will accept us then. Our question then is, what does the Bible mean when it says he who overcomes? I mean, wouldn't that be the natural question instead of trying to connect all these dots? He who overcomes, overcomes sin, overcomes this... Well, the Bible tells us, if we're just patient enough and we believe in the Bible, the Bible tells us in Revelation 12, 10, and 11. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and, and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his, of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of what? Because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. That's what the Bible's meaning is when we say, He who overcomes. How do we overcome? By the testimony. When the accuser of the brethren, when he accuses us, and he, these thoughts come through our head. We say, wait a minute, that's not me. The real me is right here. I desire what God wants me to do. I don't always do it because of, the, uh, of I listen to the flesh too long. Overcome with their testimony. What is their testimony? What is your testimony? What is my testimony? My testimony is... That Jesus Christ accepted me. He came and he knocked on my door. I wasn't looking for him. He came looking for me. The Bible says that he is the initiator. We are the responders. We don't go looking for God. God comes looking for us. He knocks on our door. We open that door. He comes in and he dwells Within us. That is our testimony. The only thing that we can say now about God. Is God is the greatest loving God. I mean that's our view of God. Because we didn't go looking for him. He came looking for us. He knocked on our door. We responded. And he came in and he cleaned house. And he came in to dwell within us. Christ in you the hope of glory. God is a wonderful God. And our testimony is, God is a wonderful God. God is a beautiful God. He will not hold my sins against me. He created me. He knows that I had a leaning, a bent towards sin. He knows all that. And he said to us, he says, even if you do, if you do listen to your flesh, he says in Corinthians I will not hold your sins against you because you are my child. You are my child. That's why I don't do it. Now the Bible says at the great right throne judgment, that those unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire and they will be devoured. That's what the Bible says. In the Bible here, in Revelation 12, is nothing to do. It, has, it says absolutely nothing about works. I don't know why we've come to the place that we've put so much emphasis on works, on what we're doing, how we're doing. It's what Christ has already done. That's what matters, what Christ has already done. The Bible says that they did not love life. They did not love life, even when faced with death. How could that be? How could that be? If you're wondering whether you're in and out, it would be easy for you not to face death because you're not sure. But if you're rock solid sure what Christ has done in you, you can face death because we're in a win-win situation. I remember not too long ago, I have a doctor who's a, a Mennonite, and he's, him and I get into Bible discussions every time I go there. And we were, we were talking about this, and I said to him, I said, Doc, I said, you know, it's, it's got to be wonderful for the Christian to know that he's in a win-win situation. No matter what happens to his physical body, he's in a win-win situation. If, 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 he, if he goes, if he, if he dies, the next moment he wakes up, his, opens his eyes, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. That's a win-win situation. But then I heard an old country song that said, uh, do you want to go to heaven? And it says, um, but I'd rather not go today. And I think a lot of people feel that way. They're afraid of death. They're afraid of the judgment. And those of us here, we've already been judged. We don't have to be afraid of the judgment. We've already been judged. We already know where we're going. We're heaven bound. They did not love their life. Because why? Because every one of us here, you know, i when I first came here, I told you that I was going to teach the exchange life in Christ. And for over a year, that's probably all, probably probably getting tired of hearing me say say it all. But it's the truth. When When you look at life and you look at it as you're one in Christ, then you can live every day. It's an exciting day every day. It's a wonderful day every day. Even when you face death. The entire point of the passage is to say that we believers will never be deleted from the book of life. Never, ever. I mean, what a comfort that is. Never, ever be erased from the book of life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you. That we have that assurance. We thank you, Lord, for your word. It helps us to love you more the more we understand it. And we appreciate all that you have done for us, all that you are doing in us, and we look forward to all that you will do in us and through us. We are your representatives here on earth, and we're proud to be that. We don't always do the right things. Sometimes we listen to our flesh. But we rest in the assurance that you know that. And you know that deep down in our deepest core, we love you with all of our heart. And it's our desire to live out your desires in us. So I pray that you continue to meet the needs that each one of us have. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful light that you have shed on some of these topics. We appreciate it. We love you more for it. It gives us an opportunity to really reflect on what an amazing God you really are. So I pray that as we leave the sanctuary, that we leave with a a heart that's lifted up. And we appreciate the call that you have given to us, that you will meet all of our needs physically, mentally. You'll be there for us. We thank you for that. Bless us now, I pray, for we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.